You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hi, this is Dr. Miriam Brand, and I'd like to introduce my new podcast series. In this podcast series, I'm going to be talking about ideas of sin and evil in the Bible, Dead Sea Scrolls, and the ancient world. This is really my expertise. I wrote a book about how the source of sin was perceived in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in the ancient world in general, really the Jewish ancient world. That's my book called Evil Within and Without. It's what my dissertation was about. A little bit about myself. I did my PhD at New York University. I have taught courses at Brown University, New York University, and Stern College. I have spoken at Cambridge University, Keele University, and Hebrew University, among others. But the important thing is that this is a topic that I am really interested in, and I would love to share with you. A little bit about this podcast, just as an introduction. In this podcast, what I'll be doing is I'm going to be taking ideas, starting with the biblical passages that are kind of the key texts for these ideas, and then tracing it through early interpretation. And by early interpretation, I mean interpretation during the Second Temple period, when the Second Temple was standing, and really concentrating on the years of about 300 BCE or BC to about 100 CE or AD. The temple is destroyed around 70 of the Common Era. However, there are a couple of very important books that react to that destruction that I will also be discussing. So our first part of the series is going to start with simply looking at the Adam and Eve story in the Bible, looking at the plain meaning of the text, saying, what is this actually telling us? Okay, then I'm going to go into the next podcast will be the Cain and Abel story. After doing a review of those stories in terms of the plain text of the Bible, keeping later interpretation to a minimum, Then I'm going to start looking at how these texts are interpreted in terms of talking about sin during the Second Temple period in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in some later works, uh, even some earlier works. And then I can go, then each time I'm going to go back to the kind of the Bible text that started off. So after we talk about Adam and Eve and how that story becomes a proof text about sin and evil. We're going to be talking about texts that were actually considered much more important to the Second Temple period, if you can believe that, which are the stories of the Watchers. That's Genesis 6. I'm going to be talking about that in detail. And that's going to explain some of the demonic explanations of sin, where sin comes is somehow caused by demons or demonic entities. And we're going to be looking at the Noah story, where that's the source of ideas about evil, the evil inclination, even though what the evil inclination becomes by the time we get to, let's say, rabbinic literature is different from the way the evil inclination is portrayed in the Bible, and also to a certain extent in Second Temple literature, in the Dead Sea Scrolls and other books. But we'll be talking about that in more detail. Besides these central podcasts that I'm recording as podcasts, I'm going to be including recordings of lectures that I do on the way, which aren't necessarily going to be about sin and evil. They will usually concentrate on either Dead Sea Scrolls or works written during that period. So for example, I have a couple of lectures coming up on the books of the Maccabees. That will be included in this podcast in case you want to listen to it. But I'm really happy that you're joining me. If you have any questions about the podcast, please feel free to post on my blog, 
understandingsin.com. And that's also where you can find any source sheets that I might use in my podcast. So I'm going to direct you to those when necessary, even though for the most part, you will not need a source sheet to follow the podcast. The source sheets will really be for your information. So let's start our first episode with the story of Adam and Eve. Now, I call this episode the origin of sin that wasn't. And that's because the story of Adam and Eve is so frequently thought to encapsulate the reason that people sin. This is everyone thinks that this is the biblical explanation of why people sin. Now, if we go back and read the biblical story with what we would call the plain meaning of the text, or in Hebrew, the pshat, right? We're going to try and read the story without the many layers of interpretation that have been added to it over the years. Now, I do admit I will every now and then mention some interpretation because some of, especially the early interpretation, it's just too good and it can kind of give us an, an, an insight into how this story was interpreted later. But as we learn this story from the beginning, I would like you to keep in mind, what is this story really explaining? What is this story really about? Okay, so let's try and distance ourselves from what we think the story is about and really read the plain text. Now, I'm going to begin the story actually before the Sid because it's important for the story itself. This Biblical stories are frequently built on parallelism. We can't take them completely out of context because in order to understand what they're trying to teach us, we have to see what the parallels are. So let's begin by reading from chapter 2, from the, from the right before the making of woman, the creation of Eve. So the question is, of course, what is the impetus for the creation of Eve? It says, I'm reading from chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to till it and tend it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you are free to eat. But as for the tree of knowledge of good and bad, you must not eat of it, for as soon as you eat of it, you shall die. Okay, he can eat every single fruit. He simply cannot eat fruit of this one tree, knowledge of good and evil. Okay, the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a fitting helper for him. And the Lord God formed out of the earth all the wild beasts and all the birds of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that would be its name. Now, just a second, right? What was the last thing we heard? The last thing we heard was that God was going to find a helpmeet for man. And now God's making all the animals and all the birds. And he says, let's see what man calls them. So what exactly is going on here? We have to remember what knowledge is. What is knowledge in the ancient world? One basic factor, one basic aspect of knowledge in the ancient world was knowing the names of things. There are lists and lists and lists of names. Here are the names of all the birds. We found them in ancient texts in Akkadian. We found lists of all the different types of, of, of wooden objects. There's an idea that knowledge, naming something, means knowing it, okay? So let's actually introduce man to these animals. Let's get, have him get to know the animals. 
and let's find a fitting helping for him. Right now, we already know how the story is going to end, but the the story is creating this kind of hmm. Let's see what man does, and the answer is he does know them. Okay, and the man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to all the wild beasts, but for Adam, no fitting helper was found. Okay, he names all the animals, and yet none of them quite are quite his mate. So he knows what they are, but but they're not for him. So the Lord God cast a deep sleep upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that spot. And the Lord God fashioned the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, and this is a poem, actually, but I'll say it in, in Hebrew first, and then I'll, then I'll give you the translation. This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, this one should be called woman, Isha, for from man, Ish, was she taken. So, like with all the animals, Adam is now naming her woman. He's naming her, her as it were, her species. And he's saying, why is she woman? Because she's related to me, Ish. We are related. We're the same species. This is the first time I'm meeting someone like this. There's a recognition that she is woman, but we are the same we're we're the same thing. We're of the same material. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife so that they become one flesh. And what is that? Therefore, therefore is because she was taken out of him. Right. So he's missing her. And then it's natural that he should leave his family and everything he knows just in order to kind of get his missing piece back. Right. So that's a natural that's a natural explanation. This is an explanation of kind of why man and woman belong together. But we're going to come back to this later on in the story. There's a reason that I read this first. And then what's the next verse? How does the chapter end? As it were, really, it's the beginning of the next story. The two of them were naked and yet they were not ashamed. Okay, so they're naked, but they have no feeling that they need to be clothed. Okay, they're essentially they're like all the other animals, right? None of the animals need clothing. They don't feel they need clothing either. And then we get into the instigator of the story. I'll read it in English. Now the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild beasts that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say? You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? The woman replied to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the other trees of the garden. It is only about fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, You shall not eat of it or touch it lest you die. And of course, God didn't say, You can't touch it. And and the uh, rabbinic commentators make a lot of that information. But here, there's not much that's done with that. And the serpent said to the woman, You are not going to die. But God knows that as soon as you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like divine beings who know good and bad. Okay, so there's a lot actually to unpack in this verse. Uh, first of all, I'd like to say that, um, and, and here I'm going to give you a little bit of interesting early interpretation. What the snake actually says to the woman is, you shall surely not die. And the way to say surely is kind of in Hebrew is this 
doubling of the language. It's a dying you shall not die. Lo mot timutun. Okay. Now, not everyone realizes this, but of course, the Hebrew in the Bible does not have any vocalization. There are no vowels in the Bible. Everyone simply knew how it was read and how it was pronounced. This continued as an oral tradition until we got to the people who we called the Masoretes. The Masoretes were rabbis who created, who defined what the Masorah, the Masoretic Bible, the Bible according to tradition, would be. They said, okay, this is the correct Bible. This is the Bible that is correct according to Jewish tradition. And this is how it is pronounced. And they actually created a method of writing the vowels. And they also created what we call the trup, the cantillation marks, how the Bible is sung and how it's punctuated. Okay, now that's not written into a Torah scroll, but when you learn to read the Bible, you learn it with the vocalization marks. And when you learn to sing the Bible in synagogue, you learn it with the cantillation marks, the trope. And those come from the Masoretes, rabbis who lived in the 6th to 10th centuries of the Common Era. They lived in the land of Israel. They lived in uh, mainly in Jerusalem and Tiberias. There were some in Babylonia, in, which is modern-day Iraq. But for the most part, we really follow the Tiberian traditions, traditions coming out of Tiberias in that area. Why did I, give, why did I say this whole story? Because punctuation, the way they, their system of punctuation that they used was very interesting. Every single word has a punctuation mark that either connects it to the next word, like a hyphen would do, or that separates it from the next word, like a comma would do. Okay. And what's interesting is that when the snake says, no, you shall surely not die, the way it's punctuated is lomot timutun. Not dying being, you shall die. Okay, so the Masoretes actually have the snake in a typical fork-tongued way hint to Eve what is going to happen. You, now you are a non-dying being, you will die because what I'm tricking you to do. And of course, the plain meaning of the text is lomo temutun, you shall surely not die. Or a dying, you shall not die. Okay, that's a little um, extra I wanted to give you on the first part of the uh, snake statement. And the second part is, what does it mean? What does it mean that you are going to be like divine beings who know good and bad or who know good and evil? And this is the whole question of what does tovira, good and evil, what does knowledge of good and evil mean in this whole story? And that's key to trying to understand what is going on. Right? They can't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then they do treat, eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then they're going to know good and evil. Okay, So there's an explanation given by Umberto Casuto, or Moshe David Casuto, depending on what you want to call him. who's an Italian rabbi who later became a, a Ugaritic scholar and a Bible scholar. Who uh, He lived uh, from 1883 to 1951. I highly recommend his commentary on the beginning of Genesis uh, from Adam to Noah. You can get it in English. And what he does is he says, let's, let's look, what does knowing good and evil mean? Well, let's look at, in general in the Bible, what does knowing good and evil mean? So let's look in Deuteronomy, for example, Devarim, chapter 1, verse 39. And it says, and your children, right, who, who you said will be, will be wasted, will be shamed, those children who do not know 
today, good or evil, they're the ones who essentially who will come to the land of Israel. This is talking about when the spies go into Israel and they come back with a bad report and none of the Israelites want to go into the land of Israel. And their punishment is that they will die out in the desert and their children who today do not know good and evil. In other words, today they are very young. They're infants now. They don't know anything, right? They're the ones who will grow up and enter the land of Israel. Okay. So the closest parallel is just not knowing anything. What does it mean to know good and evil? It means to know everything, to know what's going on. Right now, Adam and Eve are in this state where they're not quite animals, but they're close to animals in terms of the way they're looking at the world. They don't realize they're naked. They're like little children. And for some reason, they're not supposed to get to this next level of knowledge, right? They're supposed to stay in this kind of state of between animals and people, or maybe this, a childlike state where they don't know that level of what's called knowing good and evil, knowing what is good and what is bad. Now, of course, I like this explanation because it gives me an answer, right? I can say, oh, I know what knowing good and evil means. Now it means knowing something, being at a stage beyond an infant stage, understanding things. So I like it for that reason. But of course, you can still say, wait a second. In the context here, there really does sound, it really does sound like there's some distinction so a special kind of distinction of, say, virtue and vice, right? Because there's this idea or, or of morality. The truth is we don't know, and it doesn't make, the story doesn't make it clear. So I really like Kasuto's explanation. I'm going to leave it up to you to agree or disagree with me. But let's continue. And the serpent's claim is, again, that if they eat the fruit, they're going to gain this extra level of knowledge. They're going to be like divine beings. Right. And that's why God doesn't want them to do it. So moving on with verse six, when the woman saw that the tree was good for eating and a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable as a source of wisdom, she took it of its fruit and ate. Now, excuse me that I was reading a translation there. It's not quite clear that what she means, the tree was desirable as a source of wisdom. It says, and the tree was, it was pleasant to perhaps to contemplate is really a better translation. The tree was nice to contemplate. And she took of its fruit and she ate and she gave it to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they perceived that they were naked. And they sewed together fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. So what is the very first response? What, what, what does this do right away? Right away, there's some distinction saying, okay, Oh, we have parts that we need to cover. And it's important that these are loincloths. They specifically make loincloths that are simply made to cover their private parts. They're not cold. They're not distressed by the weather. All they want, they realize now that they have private parts and that those private parts should be covered. Okay. So now again, we can say this is a move beyond being childlike or being animal-like. They are now at least somewhat adult human beings who recognize what nakedness means. They heard the sound of the Lord God moving about in the garden at the breezy time of day. And a man and his wife hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? He replied, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. 
So I hid. Okay, so here we have a, a question that everyone asks. What does God mean when he says, where are you? And the answer here, really, we really can see from the answer of, of man, of Adam, right? We see that he says, God says, where are you? And he doesn't say, well, I'm here behind the bushes. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. In other words, in other words, the where are you is, why are you not out here with me? In other words, if I was supposed to pick up uh, my brother, say, at his house, and I, I'm there and I'm waiting, and I call him up and I say, where are you? His answer is not going to be in my house, because then he knows I'm going to get really, really angry. His answer is going to be, oh, I'll be out in just five minutes. I got cut up in something. When I ask, where are you? I'm like, why are you not here? And God saying, where are you? means, why are you hiding? Why are you not here? And Adam's answer is, I was hiding because, I'm going to read it now in the, in the Hebrew. He says, Right? I was, I heard, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was scared because I'm naked, and so I hid. Then he asked, namely, God, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of the tree from which I had forbidden you to eat? The man said, the woman you put at my side, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Well, this is typical. He's, he is acting like a human now. And so he says, yeah, well, you gave me that woman, and she gave me the fruit, and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman replied, the serpent duped me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, the serpent doesn't have, the, the snake doesn't have a lot to say for himself. <laughs> so God says to him, because you did this, more cursed shall you be than all cattle and all the wild beasts. On your belly shall you crawl, and dirt shall you eat all the days of your life. Of course, there's a classic Jewish interpretation, which asks, what's, what, why is this a curse, right? He's going to eat dirt. There's always dirt. He'll never be hungry ever. And the answer is, of course, that he'll never have to look up. And that's terrible. That You should never have to look up for your sustenance. That is what it means to be a creature made by God, you know, ideally. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. They shall strike at your head and you shall strike at their heel. Okay, now there's, it, there's an important message here. What, what is the, um, what's the snake's punishment? The snake's punishment is he's going to be so far removed from people, he's going to crawl around, and he will be the enemy of woman. Why the enemy of woman? Because his speaking to her was what started this whole thing off. In other words, this kind of alliance that he made with her is what began this whole, this whole thing. And so an appropriate punishment is to create a complete enmity between the snake and the woman. And to the woman, he said, I will make most severe your pangs in childbearing. In pain shall you bear children. Yet your urge shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. What is the woman's punishment? The woman's punishment is pain in childbearing. Okay, now what we're going to see with her and with, with Adam, with the man, is that her punishment is also related to her being a human being. Okay, in general, animals don't suffer severe pain unless there's something going wrong. The standard is that animals are not in severe pain when they bear children. The, vet, the uh, veterinarians among you can correct me, but I, from what I understand, the reason that human women have so much pain in childbirth 
is for two reasons. One is that we walk upright and that we have large heads. Because we walk upright in order to stay balanced, we need a relatively small pelvic area. And then you have to get a huge head and through it. And that's what makes uh, childbearing for women so difficult. That's not something that an animal on all fours or sometimes on all fours has to worry about. And so for humans, uh, childbearing pain is severe. But again, this separates human women from animals. And what is Adam's punishment? Um, oh, sorry, I, I skipped over one of the most important parts of the whole series of punishments that the perpetrators get here. And that is when God says to the woman, he says, your urge or your passion or your longing shall be to your husband and he shall rule over you. I'm going to read this in Hebrew also. First, there are two things that are important to note here. One is that the fact that she desires her husband means he's going to rule over her. That's the way the mechanism seems to work. Because she desires him or she longs for him, he will rule over her. This is a very important verse because we're going to hear an almost complete repetition of it in a very different context in the Cain and Abel story in our next podcast. And it's, that's very, very significant. And the other thing is, so you might say, well, what is, what is the desire she's supposed to be feeling? How do we know what the meaning of the word teshuka is? Okay, now, unfortunately, it really shows up only in one other place in the Bible, which is the Song of Songs, right? That I am my beloved, and to me is his teshuka, is his longing. And so it seems to be, so that, that's all we can say, is it seems to be longing or desire. It's used that way later in rabbinic Hebrew as well. And what it means is that, oh, and of course, we're going to have the word teshuka in the Cain and Abel story. And we'll discuss it in detail there. So that's part of Eve's punishment is that she is going to depend on her. She's going to long for her husband. And that means he will rule over her. Uh, the meaning of that is up for debate. If you want to hear a medieval commentator's take on it, Nachmanides, who was a, the Ramban, who was a very well-known uh, Jewish medieval commentator, said, well, you know, slaves don't want, don't usually want to be slaves, and people don't want to risk their lives, they don't want to put their lives in jeopardy, and yet women want to get married, and they want to bear children, which is kind of a sad commentary on what a woman's life was like in the Middle Ages, but trust Ramban to call it like he sees it. So moving right along. And what is Adam's punishment? To Adam, he said, because you did, as your wife said, and ate of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed be the ground because of you. By toil shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall it sprout for you, but your food shall be the grasses of the field. By the sweat of your brow shall you get bread to eat until you return to the ground, for from it you were taken. Because of course, Adam was made of dirt. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Here again, we see a difference with animals. When, when Adam is placed in the garden, it seems that what he's supposed to eat is fruit. Okay, that's you can eat from all the trees of the garden, right? He's going to eat fruit. Why is that important? Because it's all just growing. He just picks it and eats it. He doesn't have to do anything. He's not growing grain, okay? But from now on, that is exactly what he's going to have to do. He's going to have to work for his food, unlike any animal ever. Okay, so he is going to have to grow his own food. 
And then we come to something interesting, and this kind of ties us back to the beginning of the story that we read just a little while ago. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of everything living. And the Lord God made garments of skins for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Okay, now this is interesting. These are two immediate consequences of that whole story. There were the curses. Those were punishments. And for Adam and Eve in particular, those punishments make them more human. I mean, it may be the the worst side of being human, the the more painful side of being human, but it separates them even further from animals, right? Now that they know good and evil, whatever that means. But the other consequence is that Adam is giving Eve a name. Now, wait a second. Adam already named her. What did he name her? He named her woman. He said, the name of this shall be woman. But he said, the name of this shall be woman because it was just like he named all the animals. He said, this is a cat. This is a cow right? This is a woman, right? I'm a man. This is a woman. Now I know what this is, but that's not enough for people. People have names and they've gotten to that recognition now. Now Adam names her Eve, names her Chava. And why does he name her that? Because she is the mother of everything living. Is she the mother of everything living? Of course, she's not the mother of everything living, but she's going to be the mother of every living human being, right? There's a distinction now, a huge distinction between people and animals, okay? People get proper names. The everything living, all of a sudden to Adam, everything living is people. And what's the other consequence? Well, God makes them clothes. What's interesting is that God makes them clothes from leather, right? He makes them clothes from leather, from animals. Now, we're not quite at the point yet, and we're going to talk about this in a while when we get to know. We're not quite at the point where people are are allowed to kill animals, just like as if, you know, it's nothing. But there's already this distinction. They're wearing animal skins. And then we have the peculiar end of the story. And the Lord God said, now that the man has become like one of us, knowing good and bad, what if he should stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever? So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to till the soil from which he was taken. He drove the man out and stationed east of the Garden of Eden, the cherubim, and the fiery, ever-turning sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay, so why are Adam and Eve thrown out of the Garden of Eden? Why are they thrown out? They're thrown out so they won't eat of the tree of life. This is very peculiar. One of the peculiar things is that that was not forbidden to them from the beginning. The one tree they couldn't eat from was the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil. They could eat from the tree of life. They may not have known which tree it was, right? So what's interesting here is why are they all, why are they suddenly going to know, why are they suddenly going to eat from the tree of life? Well, there are several possible explanations. Okay. One is that now they will know which is the tree of life because now they know something. So they'll figure out which is the tree of life and then they'll get immortal life and they're not supposed to get immortal life. Okay. Because then they're too much like a divine being. That's one explanation. Another explanation is maybe what they're not allowed to have is the combination. Maybe they can't have the knowledge of good and evil and also immortal life because if they have both, they are too much like a divine being. So, but the, but whichever is true, right? They are sent out of the garden of Eden, not as a punishment, but so they won't eat from the tree of life because they can no longer have immortal life. God doesn't allow it. Now, of course, there's the question of what does it mean will be like one of us, but that we have the same question in when God says, let us make man. 
Is it a royal we? Is God talking to divine beings? Is God talking to angels? What's a more troubling question here, of course, is was the snake right? Right? Because the snake was saying, oh, no, God's just, just scared that you guys are going to be are going to be too divine. Right? That, it's not going to kill you. But then, of course, in the final analysis, perhaps, perhaps they would have, would have been allowed to eat of the tree of life if they had not eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So that's, that's a question that we're left with. But let's go back to what does this story actually tell us? Does the story actually tell us where sin comes from? Notice that there's nothing here about that in the future they will sin. There isn't really even an explanation of why they don't listen to God's commandment. I mean, you have a snake, and the snake is a tempter. Now, again, the snake is described as a snake. He's not, he's not Satan. He's not a demon. He's not a divine being. In fact, it makes it very clear that he's not a divine being. He's an animal. We don't know what exactly his agenda is, right? But God just comes in and punishes him, says, hey, you're going to slip on the ground from now on, and that's what he does. So he's not a demonic figure. This isn't explaining sin. This isn't telling us where sin comes from. It doesn't really even say what sin is. We are, in fact, next in the next podcast, when we look at the Cain and Abel story, we're going to get a much better explanation of what sin is, an explanation actually said by, said by God himself, right? Where God explains to Cain, or you can even say maybe tries to explain to Cain, because Cain doesn't seem to get it what sin is and what sin does. However, what's interesting in general is that, by the way, um, and as I've said, my expertise is, is in particular Second Temple literature, literature written, you know, Dead Sea Scrolls uh, literature written around that time when the Second Temple was standing. And while we have some very interesting uh, Jewish works, in general, they don't really care all that much about the Cain and Abel story. They don't look at the statement there about sin they don't look at it for their source of knowledge of about where does sin come from. Another interesting point that I would like to make before we finish is that the Bible, most biblical books, um, they do some of them do address the problem of you know bad things happening to good people. Of course, Job, but in general, why do bad things happen to good people? That's a problem that biblical books, some of them, ask and address. A question that most books, that books in general in the Hebrew Bible do not ask is if, and this is something that really bothered people during the Second Temple period, is if God created me and God does not want me to sin, then why in the world do I want to sin? And when I used to teach, when I would teach undergraduates, they would always say, well, because it's fun. And I'd say, well, why is it fun? Right? If God made me, then why should I find this fun? Right? Shouldn't I find it repulsive? And this was a problem that didn't really bother people in the time of most, let's say, if we talk about the prophets, right? It, it doesn't seem to really bother people during that period. It really starts to bother people when we're getting to after, let's say, after most of the Hebrew Bible, books of the Hebrew Bible are written, after that, when the Second Temple, after the, uh, during say, the time that has Neans and later, say from, um, 300 BCE on, that's when Jews start really being bothered by this question. Why do I want to sin? They're struggling with this desire and they're saying, why do I have it? And that's when they start talking about where does sin come from, a little bit about the Adam and Eve story, much less than you would think, actually. 
and much more about other stories we're going to talk about later on, about the evil inclination, about the watchers, that's in Genesis 6, as I've said, and try and figure out where's, why do I want to sin? Is it a demon? Is it something inside me? And how do I deal with it? So we're going to continue to talk about this. But first, I would really like to read the Cain and Abel story with you. And I'm going to do that in our in our next podcast. So please return then. And I'm looking forward to your comments. Uh, you can put them in on my blog at understandingsin.com. Thanks. And I'll speak to you again soon. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.